This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. Thank you, Tom Morello, for our anthem, Let Freedom Ring, and for always jolting us awake, sharpening us up, and giving us courage for the work ahead. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm joined by Light Eileen, Jordan Allen, and in the memory and spirit of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. We're looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, transmitting as always on the freedom frequency, and calling on you to join us as we search for spaces where we can tune in to the sounds of enlightenment and liberation, places where we can develop our freedom dreams and organize our revolutions. I'll remind you that the name Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom, draws inspiration and wisdom from the freedom schools created during the great uprisings of the 1950s and 60s. Those fugitive spaces, often meeting in a park or a church basement or a community center, or indeed under a tree, were sites where people gathered to organize an insurgency and in those settings to examine the circumstances of their lives, name their political moment, and think freely about a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. And that's our work. We do very much the same thing here. Freedom School participants generated their own questions. What evolved over time was a curriculum of questions that worked to unlock the wisdom in the room, to build agency and power through authentically engaging the real problems people faced in their lives, including structural barriers and obstacles leading to shared inquiry and then to collective action. We're broadcasting from Chicago, traditional lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, and we acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love, our first regular feature is a poem, and today's offering is from Adrian Rich. If you are troubled by the cruelty and violence and lovelessness you see around you, if you want to live in your time and not in some Hollywood or video game fantasy, if you've seen people around you pushed around or crushed, if you love language and see it being betrayed, if you feel a huge gap between what you're told is going on and what you actually see and feel on your nerves, then this is the material of your art. There's no escaping it. Thank you so much. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar and the nowhere of utopia. This is a time to put words on the page without second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop up into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Where do you or where could you find a light in dark times? Okay, start writing, pause the podcast, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time for our guest speaker segment, artists, activists, authors, academics after hours, which we pronounce ah. <laughs> and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Tara Betts, the author of Break the Habit, Ark and Hugh, and the forthcoming Refuse to Disappear. Tara and I go back at least 25 years, and I knew her first when she was a young poet in the group Mental Graffiti, or in that, that yeah. uh, what was that? It was more like a... It was the first Mental Graffiti Poetry Slam team. Yeah. After, you know, because it used to be just Green Mill was right. the only slam. They right. were the second upstart. You were an upstart. You were all young <laughs> radicals and coming at it. But Tara has continued to be an artist, um, a poet, an amazing um, social justice thinker and uh, teacher, teaching artist, mentor for other poets. She's also the inaugural 2021 Poet for the People Practitioner 
fellow with the Posen Center Human Rights Lab and the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago and founder of Whirlwind Learning Center. She cur currently teaches poetry classes at DePaul and Northwestern and throughout the community. Tara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Bill. It's always so good to see you. It's great to see you, and, and we see each other in the oddest places where young people gather, where artists gather, where... In the neighborhood. In the neighborhood, <laughs> just around the street, exactly. But I, I really am glad you're with me, and partly I want you to um, help us understand kind of the, the conjunction of art, politics, um, engagement with hmm. the social world, because you've been doing that for so long. Let me start by just asking you about being the inaugural poet for the people. I mean, what was that like? Well, I mean, I really have to thank Alice Kim and Tracy Matthews, um, two both really energetic and dynamic women who have done a lot of work, not just at U of C, but in terms of thinking about culture and its intersections with motivating people to do for the world and to think critically. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of came out of conversations that not only that Alice had with Tracy, but that I had with Alice and she just, you know, was like, would you be interested in like doing this thing? I said, sure. You know, you asked me to do it. I'll do it. Okay. You know, I just got to juggle it and figure it out. And it was kind of this adventure that I wasn't quite sure how I was going to go. And I've never had a residency where all I had to do was kind of write and think about the vision of how I wanted to present it for me alone, right? Like, okay. it's always been like, do something for my kids, or I got the book out, so now I got to do the book. And this was just like, go write, see what mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. And did she, did it involve uh, engaging with the Posen Center or with the Center on Race? Uh, well, I had a little bit already because I did a speculative workshop, like a writing workshop, just getting people to think about how do you envision the impossible, right? How do you start to ask these questions that seem like things we can't do? Or what would it look like if you created like your whole new value system? There's just one story by N.K. Jemison I like to teach and we looked at that. Um, I think it was from When is Black Future Month mm. is the name of the book. Oh, nice. So it's it's a cool book. I like it a lot. And it's, you know, so I had done that. And then I said, well, maybe we can do some writing workshops. Maybe we can do some ekphrastic poems based on Ronaldo's work. Ronaldo Hudson. Ronaldo Hudson, yeah, yeah. who was the other... Uh, practitioner fellow during 2021 with me and he had all these amazing paintings he was thinking about doing some sculpture too which didn't make it into the show but mm -hmm. um he you know they were like an ekphrastic writing workshop would be cool and then covid just kind of kicked in so we couldn't do it the way we wanted to you know but yeah. we were still in conversation and i was writing stuff and you know, he was framing work and we said, okay, we'll at least have the one piece that where we partner on, which was right. the forgotten women of COVID. Right. Cause we had talked a lot about, you know, when we talk about mass incarceration, we don't talk about how that impacts women nearly as much right. as how it impacts men. Right. So. But you and Ronaldo collaborated, you put up a show recently at the Logan center. Right, right, right. And I, I I spent a lot of time looking at the pieces that were up there and reading your work. Um, you don't have any of those poems at hand. That's all right. It's not. Oh, important. I do. I do. I gotta look at them because because they were short. Um, yeah. And they were, and I found them um, a beautiful complement and a beautiful addition and expansion of what the paintings did. I just I just found reading reading the poetry and looking at the paintings was kind of a, a necessary um, dance of the dialectic. I really loved it. Yeah, and it was kind of cool because I had this opportunity to reflect, but I was having, like a lot of people, some people, they just wrote whole books during the pandemic. 
and I found myself coming up with new ideas. I have ideas for enough books for probably the next 10 years now. Good to have them in your mind, and then you can right. work away. Right. Yeah, so I've been drafting different pieces for different things, but it's also been this thing of I just wanted to capture little, like, particularly the Alice Coltrane poems. Like, could I capture something in a breath? Mm. You know? So I was thinking a lot about that, and I said, okay, it's time for me to write haiku. Yeah, I was interested that they were haiku, and, and uh, really, really um, concise, <laughs> but they somehow added a dimension to what was on the wall that was really spectacular. You know, and I think part of it was, too, and I talked a little bit about it in the exhibit essay, I just kind of felt like, after the January 6th rebellion and I had been inundated with the TV and all the stuff from the protests and because you know I've had respiratory issues I was just like I can't go out I can't do mm. this I mm. just did not feel like it was a good idea yeah. and so I'm watching all this stuff and as soon as I saw all these people storm the Capitol as much as you know I think the government is problematic I'm like does this set the tone for this to happen to regular people, because those are supposed to be the special people, right? right, right. And if that can happen, well, you know, yeah. you know, it well, makes you think. Yeah, it does make you think. I mean, I mean, one of the things about a moment like that is you're reminded of historical moments when you had to build a united front against fascism. So exactly, while, while you may not have any love for, you know, the capitalist government that we have. At the same time, a fascist insurgency um, it has to be opposed by all people of, you know, who have any consciousness of right. what democracy ought to look like, knowing that we live in a flawed, imperfect, sometimes aspirational democracy. But going to fascism as the answer is the worst. Mm. And then it also really made me think about how was I taking care of myself for the first time? Because there's been so many times where I just pushed through when I was having a hard time with so many things. Yeah. And you know that. We've talked about sure. it. But I saw that on the TV, and I, I just felt myself curl up on the couch. I turned off the TV, and I started listening to Alice Coltrane records. That's the way to do it. That, that TV was toxic at it that point. It was just too much. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, and I said, what would Alice do? I had that moment. I like it. And um, I said, I think I need to really think about meditation in a different way. Mm -hmm. And focusing myself on some different things. And it kind of like, I just heard them the poems start coming. Yeah. Or I would see an image in my head and be like, okay. It's here. I got to just go. And I'm trying to finish it up now. I was reading. Um, she did this tiny spiritual biography called Monument Eternal. Right. So some of it is about meditation and some of it is just like the wild things she saw. Right. And it kind of tells you about that time when when a lot of black folks in America were starting to think about these kind of new age concepts. Mm -hmm. You know, right. and I was like, this could be interesting. So I'm thinking about that and how that's another kind of freedom, right? Because if you've always been a person of color, a woman, somebody who feels like your whole life is on the margins, you go, yeah, mm. my rest is important too. Because everybody else gets to take a break when they want to take a break. Mm. Mm. They get to think about what they want to be if they're not fighting all the time. Right. And that pushed you into this kind of short form? It kind of did. And, I, and I do you have couldn't... a couple you could share? I'm looking. You know what? I'm just pulling them up right now. Because, you know, bingo. Okay. These are the longer poems. But these are poems that, that were with the Ronaldo. Oh, I yeah. Think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and... So these are just some of the poems. And if you can contextualize it, read us a poem, and then contextualize it with the show that you put up with Ronaldo. So we're looking at a couple of the Alice poems. Okay, we can do that. Um, I have actually 
it's funny they all the Alice poems ended up in one frame in the show that's right because they're so short that's right i yeah. figured it would give people one place to look where they could kind of focus and just live in that so i said yeah we'll just put them all together but um i, I thought a lot about how this idea of light of illumination comes up in her work and how movement comes up in these very soft and subtle ways and not just because she played piano and the harp but the stories that she told about her growing spiritual consciousness and how she kind of looked at the interconnections between everything so I wanted to think about like concrete images with that but then I also wanted to think about how even like a lot of political struggles she was always looking at connecting these different traditions mm -hmm. you know so it kind of came up like, yeah, she likes looking at stuff from the East, like the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita, but she's also looking at jazz and mm -hmm. how does it connect to world music and, you know, spiritual music, you know, and curtains and things like that. So those things kind of come up and I'll, I'll just read a couple of them. Great. Alice transcends light faster than waves or photons beyond mere mortal. Before John drifted, he bought a harp. It arrived after his last breath. Alice swore the breeze coming through the window made strings hum. Mm -hmm. Diatonic strings bent under fingers a flutter. Her harp shapes mantras. Divine embraces a brood. Bhajan, Bhagavad Gita, Quran, jazz synthesized as a prayer the West did not hold or hear. She is galaxy. Stars unfurl in the midnight skyline of her hair. Alice floats through time, winnows a wormhole through a vortex funneling sound. Song unfolded in prayers, unwrapped with joy, orange as fresh marigolds. Wow. And how did you get to... Of all the music you know and love, what took you to Alice Coltrane at this moment? You know, it's so funny. I, I come back to her all the time, and I haven't always talked about it, but I, I mean, if you if you were a hip-hop head in the 90s, which was my big thing, and when I when I first met you, you know, it's like most of the, the, the hip-hop that I really loved had so much foundation in jazz. Right. So you, you went back and you looked at Freddie Hubbard or mm. Cannonball Adderley or, of course, Miles Davis and John, but not everybody talked about Alice. Good point. Very good And point. she was his collaborator on right. so many things in, right. in the bands, and then she had her own music. You know, and she came from a family of songwriters, which people don't really talk about that either. Right. So I said, yeah, this is very ripe for storytelling and I know there's a biography that just came out about Alice because she was so private right and I think it's a good time to revisit her because now people are kind of talking about her contribution I saw a review of that biography and I've got to get it I haven't gotten it it's but, pretty good it's a yeah. quick read do you remember the name uh, I think it's also called Monument Eternal that's right that's right and um it's so, a scholar. I can't remember her name. So we do a little bit here on this podcast called My Book of Books. So the reason I asked you for the name is because we're creating a catalog of everything that all you brilliant um, <laughs> artists and poets and, and uh, activists, what are you reading kind of thing. And, oh, that, and, and the fact that you're reading that, that's going to go on our, in our catalog, in our yeah. um, archive. Cool. So, so what else are you reading that's important? Oh my gosh, right now, I'm actually, I'm doing an herbal apprenticeship. So I'm doing work where I, I'm starting to go into the garden wow. and learn about, you know, plants that heal. Um, we're in, our, our instructor, Kim Crutcher, is talking about how this is our self-care year. Like we figure out what herbs work for things that we're dealing with. Right. And so that's been kind of exciting. So I'm reading, she has us reading Back to Eden by 
I think his name is Jeremy Kloss or something. Okay. It's an old book from like the yeah, 20s and 30s. Right. And then we're reading a new book. It's called Working with the Roots by Michelle something. I cannot mm. remember her name. That's okay. But it's a big book and she interviews all these um, older black people who've been working as herbal healers, particularly in the South. Wow. And they're just, it's like oral histories. Right. And then wow, there's kind of like exciting. A, yeah. Yeah. So that's been kind of cool. And then poetry wise, I just picked up. Well, I haven't just picked it up, but one of the books that I'm kind of slowly paging through is Negotiations by Destiny Birdsong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, I want to go back yeah. to the to the herbs for a minute, because, you know, you talk about a, a, a time that's ripe for this kind of discovery. I mean, mm-hmm. we've kind of reached the end of the kind of Western colonial imperial white supremacist idea of what the world could or should look like, and we realize we're on the abyss of complete collapse. Yep. We don't have a medical, we don't have a public health system, we have a war, war mongering system, we have a white supremacist system, but all the things that traditional peoples have been telling us about how we cannot live separate from the world, but we must be in harmony with the world, all that's coming to be much more relevant and absolutely and, and much more urgent in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I find it fascinating that you're you're back there. I'll tell you one other book that friends of mine wrote is called Between Heaven and Earth. Mm. Uh, it's a story of traditional Chinese medicine okay. interpreted for a Western audience. Um, mm-hmm. But it's by Harriet Beinfield and Ephraim Korngold, and it gets into a lot of the same stuff. And they're they're traditional practitioners of of uh, Chinese medicine, including acupuncture, herbs, right. and, and so on. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting. But the other thing that came to my mind is I'm, I'm often drawn to a, a, a quote from um, the great socialist, European socialist, Rosa Luxemburg, mm-hmm. who, when she was in prison, uh, friends, were, during because she was protesting um, World War I, and she was imprisoned, and there's this great flow of letters back and forth. And at one point, one of her friends writes to her and says, Rosa, we're suffering out here without you. We can't go forward without your leadership. I don't know what to do. And Luxembourg writes back in a classic letter. She says, first of all, stop whining, because whining won't take you anywhere, right? And that seems to me, that was written 120 years ago or something, but it's still relevant today, right? I mm-hmm. mean, stop whining. It doesn't go anywhere. And then she says, second, my advice to you is to become a mensch, M-E-N-S-C-H, Yiddish word. She says, I can't define it for you, but a mensch is someone who loves her own life enough to enjoy the sunrise and the sunset, a bottle of wine with friends, some chance to relax and kick back. Mm -hmm. But a mensch is also someone who loves the world enough to put her shoulder on history's wheel when history requires it. And she said, work that out in practice with your friends. Be a mensch, and you'll be fine. But I love the dialectic of that. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to love the world, but it's also not enough to love yourself. You have to figure out how to do both and. So I was was thinking of that as you were talking about some of the practices you're into now, which are terrific. And you're right. You have a right to enjoy life and to love life. Um, Yeah. And we have to love our own lives if we're going to be meaningful to the struggle. Yeah. And that that kind of balance always is very exciting for me to think about that. Like, I think I always think back to June Jordan a lot for that. Like, super prolific in multiple genres, but also just, you know, I got that feeling like she was always in conversation with people and loving her life. Right. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. Like, I right. want to have a huge body of work right. that people can go back to because that's your record after right. you're gone, right? But I'm I'm also just like, she was always writing letters. She was always going to parties. She mm-hmm. was always on the phone with people. Right. And you see it in the work. And right. I'm like, that, I think in a way, keeps you alive and keeps you young right? in some ways. I think that's right. But I also think there's something in the balance I mean, if if freedom is the question, um, I think we have to recognize both 
the individual aspect of it, the personal, but we have to really double down on the social aspect of what freedom could mean. And part of that requires the public square mm. and, and, and you know some kind of meeting in the public square. So here you and Ronaldo, mm-hmm. a couple of thinkers and activists and organizers, here you have a joint show at the Logan at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And we talked a bit about that collaboration, but that was very much the opening of a public space. So you were there in dialogue with people who were coming to see the show several times, right? Yeah. Now talk about that a little. What was that like? What did, how did people react? Well, I know the initial event, we were on Zoom. I think you came to that where we just had a public event because we weren't even in buildings at that point. Right. Um, it got a lot of really good buzz in terms of people being excited that the conversations were starting to happen. Right. But we were like, okay, what is that going to look like when we're actually in person? So that question kept tumbling around for almost a year. And then when we finally (laughs) were able to mount the exhibit, you know, I was telling people because I was kind of worried we wouldn't be able to meet for long before something else happened. So I would tell people, I'm like, I'm going to be at the coffee shop. Come and meet me. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, and if you want to have, I'll, I'll answer questions or we could talk about the exhibit and we can have a cup of coffee or just sit for a minute. So I did that a few times. I'm sure Ronaldo did too. He, he did. was doing and, regular and, office hours. And people came out, right? And yeah. You, what, what were some of those dialogues like? I mean, you know, what do people, how do people react to that? I, I think some people were just really excited that the space was being used in that way that there were more than two artists because usually they just focus on one artist mm-hmm. in that space. Right. And they're not always in conversation with one another, which I think it would be more exciting to see more of that in Chicago. I agree. Like I know, I think it was um, Eric Elstein just got appointed to be poet in residence at the field museum. Right. And he's been trying to do stuff like that and mm-hmm. incorporate poetry into these larger installations. And I've been thinking about that for a while. It's like, what would that look like to kind of have these interdisciplinary conversations? Right. Well, I I have felt like there ought to be a poet in residence in every institution. Poet in residence at at the firehouse. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, just there was actually, I read it. Now it's a vague memory, but in New York a couple of years ago, the uh, sanitation department hired a poet in residence. Wow. Yeah, and, and that person spent a lot of time at the headquarters of the sanitation department, out on the routes, picking up garbage. I mean, what a terrific uh, idea to, right. to not think of the head and the hand as so separate. Right. But thinking of them as joined to the benefit of each. Yeah. It makes me think of a couple of things. I'm, I'm thinking, one... I would love to hear poems that sanitation workers write. Exactly. Because they've seen stuff that a lot of us have never seen or would not be able to describe. Right. You know, what it makes me think about is, I don't know if you know the poet Mark Nowak. Yeah, the social poetics. Yeah. That's so great. The work that he's doing and that book. Yeah, social poetics is a great book, but I'm teaching a book he wrote called um, Coal Mountain Elementary. Did you ever see that book? It's a great book. Yeah, and, and it's it's oral history rendered as poetry. And I don't, I don't know as well as you do, you might say a word about social poetics. What does Mark mean by that? Well, I think he's talking about... it's First off, social poetics, for people who are listening, it's a series of essays. So it's not poetry at all, but he's basically talking about like what you talked about in the outset of the show these poetry workshops that have happened in different places Mm -hmm. and kind of tracking the history of publications that have come out of these alternative spaces. And then he starts to talk a little bit about his experiences establishing the workers writers school, which they have a great little Instagram where they document some of the workshop participants poems and, how they make decisions and things like that and what they decide to write about. And I was like, yes, this is the work that needs to happen. Because I think 
poetry that is strictly coming out of universities and MFA programs, it starts to sound redundant. Yeah. It's all in this one note or it's just right. obscure and esoteric sometimes in ways that don't speak to people. Yeah. Yeah. And then it leaves out a <laughs> huge swath of other types of stories. Right. Well, I, I was with Mark a couple of years ago at the the Worker Writers Workshop, which he right. runs. And we were at a, a place in um, Chelsea in New York. Mm -hmm. And he had gathered a well-known Japanese haiku poet, Ooh. Ruthie Gilmore, the prison abolitionist, mm -hmm. myself, and a couple other people. And then in the group, he had domestic workers, Starbucks workers, um, uh, transit workers, teachers, and they taught haiku. And then the participants wrote haiku. And mm. it was astonishing when people stood up to read mm. because, you know, Mark's idea, I think, is, and, and I think this is your idea, and I think it's what you and Ronaldo were, were also showing, is that this is not some distant thing that exists in some locked room at the top of the Acropolis, you know. This mm -hmm. is something that can mean, be meaningful for you, right, in your real life. And I think that's mm -hmm. an exciting thing to think about. Right. The arts and work and all these things coming together. And everybody's got a story to tell. Right. I think there's something empowering and powerful in being able to say, I have a story. Right. I matter. Things that I know and witness and experience are powerful and they matter to other people too. Right. You know, and just being able to say that I have a story that does all of that. I think so. And I think that what you were doing down at that cafe at the Logan Center is you were engaging in dialogue with people who also have stories and right. reading your work or seeing Ronaldo's art kicks off a reaction in them and then they go down a certain road. I hope so, yeah. you know, and I, I also kind of hope that, I mean, when I think about being in places like University of Chicago or Northwestern or DePaul, and you see there's all these resources to do something very small. It wasn't a huge show. That's right. I mean, it featured a good number of Ronaldo's paintings. It had a handful of framed work by me. And there were all these resources to go into doing it for this one show for one month in this little space. And I was just like, wow, what would that look like if you had the same budget, the same resources, and half the staff mm. to do a show in a community space right. that didn't have a university or a foundation behind it. What does that look like? Right. I think it's a really important question, you know, especially we're looking at a moment when the public square seems to be disappearing. It's mm -hmm. being eclipsed by all kinds of forces. But at the same time, um, there are people pushing back. And I take enormous sustenance from the organizing of the Amazon workers in Queens. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what and the Starbucks workers everywhere pushing back. Or what you just made me think of was when the Berkeley, um, California, you know, talk about a rich institution. We see these gems, mm -hmm. but walled off from the community. Right. You know, walled off from people who could use them and should have access to them. When the Berkeley graduate students went on strike, um, they opened the library to the community mm -hmm. and they said, you know, everybody come and they kept it open 24 hours. I mean, oh, that's cool. That's a beautiful thing. You know, that right. this resource should not be a gem that's locked up. It ought to be part of, you know, community life. So right. uh, that was a, a beautiful gesture. But in some ways, that's what you're right. It's a tiny example. The show you and Ronaldo put on, but it points to something larger. Mm -hmm. that, what if we could unlock the resources of the University of Chicago and open them to the South Side? Mm -hmm. I mean, what would change? And, and what would be the benefit to a vision of democracy and a, division, a vision of justice? Right. And what does it mean, too, to not... It's almost like I tend to think of institutions as, as a little... As somebody who's watched a little bit of Star Trek... I look at institutions and I feel like, oh my God, they're the Borg. Um, <laughs> which if you know how the Borg work, it's yeah. like, 
Yeah, they come in and they're kind of like they take over and then all of a sudden you're part of it and it's not your thing anymore. Right. Right. What does that mean if institutions don't act like the Borg and take over, but they say, look, let us know how we can be a partner and you determine your level of involvement with us, Uh you know, because I think a lot of, particularly on the South side, I did some work with Chicago Humanities Foundation last summer and it felt like, and they wanted us to partner with South side organizations Uh and it was really insightful because a lot of people didn't realize how much had already been happening on the South side and people were doing it on shoestring budgets or they just had a really strong network of other people mm-hmm. who knew each other. And so they would figure out, okay, you got this, we got that, we'll do this here. Mm-hmm. We know at least three spaces where we can do that. And people would kind of make it work right. without the same infrastructure, without the same budgets. Right. Right. And it's, <sighs> I feel like sometimes there is a short changing of what, people are capable of because they don't have a name or a foundation behind them right and it's unfortunate i'm sure of it and and as you say but working in these institutions can be its own contradiction its own discomfort absolutely how how do you walk that line how do you do it you Um, know you know the other thing I, i just to shift gears slightly um i i would really like to talk about the culture that we're living in now, the yeah. culture of censorship, number one, mm-hmm. culture of kind of tromping down on what history can be taught. You know, we're in the moment mm-hmm. of the don't say gay moment in Florida and the attack on trans youth. Right. Which is, you know, just ongoing. Growing, ongoing. But then the question of, of um, being an artist in this moment, do you feel these constraints or do you feel... Does it, does it energize you? Does it intimidate you? What, how do you respond to this mm-hmm. cultural moment as a working artist with a long, long history? I think, well, as an educator, I've always been very cautious and protective about protecting students in terms of their safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been moments in my teaching career where I wish people had done better because right. you may not be a parent, you don't want to be ageist and assume people can't make their own choices, but you're also showing up for people in a way that it's like, I know this could be bad for you, so I'm going to at least say something. I'm going to at least tell you, you know, don't go with this person, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had a lot of moments like that where I think about that as an educator, like what could I do to make my students feel safer? But then also, too, they need to understand there's a delicate balance between censorship and saying the thing that needs to be said, right? Like, do you hurt people with what you say? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you talking about a situation that's difficult for people to navigate? And are you going to find a way to write through it so that people see why you even wrote about it in the first place? Mm. You know, Say more, because you, you've been, I mean, we've witnessed here in Chicago, I don't, I don't like to use the term cancel culture because I think that's a right-wing term, but we've seen a lot of um, instances where people um, didn't want to hear this or didn't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people clamp down on artists um, yeah. or free expression. On the other hand, you're right. We want to be, as teachers, I've always objected to kind of... I, I kind of like the University of Chicago code about all ideas are equal, except that it's so bloodless the way they write it. You know, it's formal instead mm-hmm. of um, what a teacher does, which is feels the needs of her, his students, and mm-hmm. tries to respond to those needs. So while I may not like trigger warnings, I have no problem as a teacher saying to kids, look, this is going to be kind of intense, and if it's too intense, I, I have right. no problem with that. Right. I'm feeling my students out. But I, I just like you to think, to say a, lit, a bit more about this whole question of who has a right to speak and who has a right to read and, you know, those kinds of things. Well, I mean, growing up 
as somebody who identifies as black came from an interracial background with a white mother and a black father i've always thought about what does it mean if somebody takes up too much space Mm. like you know i mean even if i look at us it's like you know we're two cisgender people having a conversation Mm -hmm. and then you know am i taking up space that somebody who is not my you know embodying me as somebody who could be identified as a light-skinned person in a mm-hmm. colorist culture mm-hmm. as a cisgender straight woman you know mm-hmm. and it's like okay are you bringing other things to the table where you make other people feel acknowledged in that space mm-hmm. and i think about that a lot i do think about trigger warnings mm-hmm. um because you talk I mean, I've taught writing workshops with sexual assault victims. I've had students who were sexually assaulted. Of course. And even beyond that, you know, students who've had eating disorders, students who were cutters. And you think about all of that stuff and you're like, okay, how do we talk about that? And I know there are some professors who don't issue any kind of tenderness. That's what I would call it. I would say tenderness makes enormous sense to me. Empathy. Right. And if that never comes up then I'm like, oh, you're just coming in and checking in because this is your job. Right. And not realizing how much of it is being present for other people. No, I agree. I, agree. I mean, I think that that the, the fundamental intellectual challenge and social challenge of being a teacher is seeing the human being before you mm-hmm. in all of her or his complexity and right. honoring that somehow. Right. That's hard. And, and that's your job. Right. So I agree with all that. I like tenderness and, and compassion. Um, but I also think I get nervous on the other side where we say, oh, I want to say one other thing before I say that, that, mm-hmm. that um, when you say taking up space, one of the beautiful things about the moment we're living in is the ways in which people coming in from the margins create new space. And, right. and you know, one of the things I've loved about learning how to do a little bit of podcasting, even though I have a kind of a back back garage, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, product here. But nonetheless, I think what's great about it is that it is open to people. And mm-hmm. this has been true in every social movement we've ever witnessed in history. People find ways to create a new public space. They do. And, and, and it really always comes from the margins. So that's exciting. But, but I worry a little bit about this question of, um, of the, the kind of attack on, well, let me put it this way, being sensitive, being compassionate, but there's then also the problem that anytime you learn, it's disruptive. It disrupts my common sense. Right. And now I have to think differently about something I had taken for granted. So if we get to the point where we start saying things like, Every student should be comfortable in every class all the time. I get nervous because my mantra has always been, everyone in my classes should be uncomfortable, mostly me. Right. I I mean, discomfort is where I get to take a step forward. Yeah, and I do think there is a difference between safety and discomfort. That's correct. And, I mean... I think that's right. Initially, every writing workshop I've ever taught, unless they're super teeny tiny... And I haven't taught preschoolers in a while, but I would be like, we're going to sit down and determine what are the guidelines together. Beautiful. What do we do? You know, and a lot of that is informed by June Jordan's Poetry for the People. A beautiful book. You know, which I think we can kind of update some of those things in terms of the language because the book is a little bit old now. But the fundamental concepts are still the same. It's like, how do we sit down at this table together? Mm -hmm. How do we talk to each other? How do we start to work through some of these things? How do we include all these stories of all these different people who are at the table and that we may encounter? Mm -hmm. And for me, that was so key to me being a teacher. Like, I'd be like, what do we do? What do we do? And how do we, how do we enter into a dialogue where we listen with the possibility of being changed, but we speak with the possibility of being heard. Mm-hmm. How do we acknowledge everyone at the table? Right. Not just 
the people who are taking up all the space. And then, too, I think as an educator, you have to be conscious about who's taking up all the space, mm -hmm. including yourself. Including yourself. <laughs> so, One of the things I often argue to my students in, in seminar is that we are all teachers, we are all students. So you need to check yourself if you're mm -hmm. not participating enough or participating too, too much. much. And, and there's something about a seminar and a workshop that requires the generosity of participation. Mm. But too much participation is not generous. And that's a, right. that's a tricky thing that you're describing. Yeah, especially now, because I find so many young people are so anxious. Mm. I think it's because we've come out of this testing culture mm. that has really impacted their fearlessness. Um, they, you know, they're freaked out by student debt, which is astronomical compared to what it was when I was in undergrad. Right. And just the regular tumult, like undergrads now who are sophomores have been in a pandemic the whole time they've been in college. It's not a normal experience. Right. So I do kind of track them and go, okay, there's one person who's like the bright, bubbly personality who's always talking, but who's the person who's not talking? Right. And I make a point to be like, it's hard for me now to remember everybody's names, but I will be like, you know, Frank, yeah. you haven't said anything today. You look right. thoughtful. What right. are you What are you thinking? It's important. Yeah. And you it's know? important that other people sitting around that table also feel that it's their responsibility to get Frank to say something, too. Right. You're not the only teacher in the room. Right. Everyone at the table is a student and a teacher or a teacher and a student. Yeah. And they can important. ask each other questions. Yeah, exactly. And be like, you know, I really am interested in what you said about blah, blah, blah. Tell me more. Yeah. And I love when those moments happen. Right. You know, especially now because students... They haven't talked to people, so some of them are kind of freaked out to talk at all. Well, exactly. It's been, you know, there's, I think the the toll of the pandemic is uncalculated and almost uncalculable. But, but I have a great advantage right now, which is I teach doctoral students at DePaul University. Mm -hmm. Some of them first generation college, all of them first generation in graduate school. I teach undergraduates at the University of Chicago, 19 year olds. Mm -hmm. who were born after 9-11, you know, and so wild, I know it? the reference point. And then I teach at Stateville Prison, where my students are mostly in their 40s and 50s. Yeah. And they're writing memoir and they're not checking a box. These guys are serious about wanting to learn to write because their story will be lost and they don't want it to be lost. And yeah. So Some I, really I, I thoughtful a, people at Stateville, too. I, I miss teaching amazing? poetry there. I know you were. We were teaching the same in the same kind of. The, program the education building yeah yeah and <laughs> and we're going to be in person again uh this spring so That's i'm excited cool. about that yeah are you going to come back to teach there i would love to i think i needed a break because i did it for three years straight in person like back-to-back -back semesters and then i did um about a year in the pandemic where I would write via correspondence right. and I just got so tired. Yeah. It's exhausting. Um, that correspondence stuff is exhausting. Yeah. It started to wear me out. And well, you know, you get these downloads, you get these, these downloads and it's pencils. They give the golf pencils, the with no eraser. Golf pencils right. And so <laughs> you have to kind of decipher what's going on. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, you've got a, a new book coming up. You mm -hmm. want to say a word about that book? Uh, yeah, the new book is called Refuse to Disappear. It's on WordWorks Books, and the pre-order links are up on the WordWorks Books website. And I can put them on this as well. Yeah, that would be great. And it just got selected to be part of the Rumpus Poetry Book Club as the June selection. Nice. So Excellent. It's been pretty cool. Great too. things. We're not going to hear anything from that book, right? Well... I no. mean, no, no, not today. <laughs> okay, but maybe, maybe you could, maybe you could close us out with a couple of poems. Um, I'd love to. Is there it, anything you want to hear? Well, I mean, I have, I have, several, I have your book here. I have um, Martina Spada's book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I should say that uh, you and I were together when Martin Espada came to Chicago and gathered together several folks. Yeah. Tell, say, say a word about that. Um, um, the book is something that Martine edited. Um, I got it right there. There it is. So, 
yeah the book um bill's talking about is what saves us poems of empathy and outrage in the age of trump and um yeah i, I was i don't know this isn't one of my favorite poems don't though. read it don't read so, it but tara does have a a poem in that book yeah and when martine uh came to chicago i love this book though yeah it's a really good book and when martine came to chicago he gathered several chicago poets who have contributions in that book mm -hmm. we had a terrific reading um at the bookstore and then we came over here and had, had a little food party. yeah had a little party <laughs> that was fun you and know martine is a force of nature i mean absolutely most people know his poem that's been anthologized every everywhere Imagine the Angels of Bread. Oh, yeah, beautiful book. Beautiful, beautiful. And he is a prolific writer as well. Yeah. Important writer. Gosh, I still remember I was in undergrad when I bought that book, Imagine the Angels of Bread. And um, I got a hardcover copy that was almost brand new at Armadillo's Pillow, that little tiny used bookstore on the north side in yeah. Rogers Park. Yeah. So I still have it. It had... I think it had the press photo in it where Martine is looking like, you know, <laughs> kind of like he's he just got finished bouncing. Like he still looks young like that. <laughs> you know, what are you pulling? I'm, oh, and you have Lauren's book, too. I'm pulling different books because I just handed you Social Poetics, which okay. we talked about. Yep. But um the other person who came with Martine to that reading that you all did was Lauren Marie Schmidt. She also has a wonderful poet. Wonderful poet. And she has a book called Filthy Labors that mm -hmm. I've, I've read from even on this, uh, on this podcast. But, yeah. But what would you like to read? Well, you know, since you brought up Stateville, I was thinking about this poem. And I think I gave you a copy of this you book. Okay. You it's, um... A book that was published on an imprint that Miriam Kaba does. Right. And um, it's called Our Girl Tuesday and Unfurling for Dr. Margaret T.G. Burroughs. And part of why I wrote this poem is because Dr. Burroughs used to teach poetry at Stateville. Right. And when I started, I had several students there who actually had worked with her when she taught there. So I was like, oh... I'm kind of thinking about this. It's beautiful. You know? Back up one minute, though, and tell people who Dr. Margaret Burroughs was. So she Dr. was a neighbor Burroughs, and a friend, but who else? What right, else like another Southside resident. Um, yeah, yeah. She was the founder for the Southside Community Arts Center, which is the longest still-running space of the WPA project that is still in existence, still running, still featuring artists. Um that that space is still open and a lot of people go there not just for the art but because it's um an intact example of Bauhaus architecture as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's right across the street from her old house and she was also the founder of the DuSable Museum here in Washington Park and she founded that in her house with yeah, her husband originally initially. in that house yeah yeah and so now it's it's in Washington Park but um she wrote many, many poems, did tons of visual art. Her visual art is so wonderful. It's and her amazing. Poems and, are and, great. And, and she was a mentor to generations of poets, including Absolutely. Haki Marabudi and, yeah. and many, many others. I was reading the story about how he, he met her. He, he showed up at her house and That's asked right. her, basically, does she need an intern? And she's like, yeah, sure, come and give tours. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> You know, Hilarious. but, um, yeah, I, I really was, once I realized she had done workshops like poetry and visual art for years at Stateville and then students started telling me, yeah, this is what she was like right. and she could go here. She had access to all these spaces that, you know, they don't give you guys access to now. Right. Right. And she would bring people like toiletries and art supplies and stuff. And I was just like wow what if it was like that now we felt like but anyway you know i think if you're a woman going into carceral spaces particularly if you're dealing with men they yeah. they limit your movement in ways because they think you're looking for something other than to be you know a support system yeah, and a teacher or, or a teaching artist yeah I yeah mean, 
it's it was astonishing about the American prison system and people really ought to see it up close because you uh, can't understand it from a distance. It's, you cannot. It's so cruel and it's not just removing somebody from their freedom. Mm-hmm. It's adding and heaping on humiliation and disability and you know limitations that aren't just limitations to your free movement in the in the outside world. The limitations to your ability to thrive and grow and flourish. Right. And it is really disgusting to watch up close. Right. So to kind of transcend that, you know, you're talking about Margaret Burroughs going into other spaces. After I talked with Alice and Ronaldo here mm-hmm. the other day, we went downstairs to a social gathering and Jesse Jackson came in. Right. And Ronaldo and Jesse fell into each other's arms. <laughs> and Ronaldo, not only did Jesse have something to do with Ronaldo getting out, but Ronaldo remembered a time when Jesse came to visit a group of guys who were on death row. Mm-hmm. They were in shackles. And Jesse walked in and he looked at the guards sternly and said, you take those shackles off. I'm not meeting with people in chains. And Ronaldo said they did. And we were all surprised. Right. You know. But I think sometimes I think folks like you and me ought to make a bit of a demand on the institution when we can. I agree. Yeah. You know, it's just those little things, you know, the little dehumanizations are yeah. and they add up and they go on day in and day out all day right. long. Anyway, so you were going to read us a poem. OK, Um. I think I, I was struggling and I hope in some ways this poem contradicts some of that meanness that people expect prison to be because. I think people have ideas about people in prison. Like, isn't it dangerous when you go in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, always. And people say that always. They always say yeah. that. And I also feel like I've enjoyed teaching there so much because the students were so generous, right. so engaged, so lively, so thoughtful, so polite. Yeah. You know, and you it, know, it belies the stereotype and. Yes. One thing about them as students is they're not checking a box. Let me get this on my, on my transcript. Mm-hmm. They're none of that. I mean, they exactly. really want to learn what you have to offer. I know, and I've I've told them many many times. I'm like, you guys are more engaged than most graduate students I've worked with. You're Absolutely. more engaged than most students who pay tons and tons of tuition, to yeah. learn the same things that I'm trying to share. Right. And. You have more to say. Yeah, and you have a story. Exactly, and they're not, they're not faking it. There, they're really authentic. Right, and, and you know they don't have the foundation of having gone to a good grade school or a good high school, but nonetheless, their commitment and their energy kind of overcomes that. Right, and also too, if they don't like something, they'll tell you. I'm like, yeah. you don't have to like everything. Yeah, they don't bullshit. But All right, um, let, here's the poem. It's called Small Illuminations. One, Albert is a gentle tower. His arms arched over tabletop like bridge beams or girders. Even if he does not understand everything he reads, he smiles like a good kid, like the kid he probably was 30-some years ago when he was in the wrong car with the wrong people at the wrong time that he will never get back. Two, The attention to detail borders on flawless, unscuffed white sneakers, perfected lined fades, tucked under precisely folded scullies, immaculate with what you got as a clean, hard-fought pride. Three, one week, I bring crisp folders, a bundle of sharpened pencils with full pink erasers, round and soft as a doll's blush. They rub away small errors, clearing smudges from a page, like an actual correction. Four, I look for Albert's easy grin first when I walk into the concrete block classroom, locked in the education building, relieved that the broken window denies the cold like a plea. One brother in blues with thermal sleeves peeking out of the dull faded ocean of cloth arching over his torso. A cellmate hands me the slightly worn, safeguarded, staple-bound book of poems, the signature, resolute and matching letters of a poet's name who strolled into prison like a mother without fear of any child. 
Margaret Burroughs, more than a decade since she left the cell of her body. I clutch her poems knowing how they passed from her hands like a prayer. We both smile, small illuminations in a dark hell. When the cellmate says, Albert wanted you to have this, he got transferred, he knew you'd keep it safe. Damn. I'm, I gotta get that. I don't think I have that one. I got a copy for you. I mean, that is, that, <laughs> I'm, I'm buzzing with that one. Yeah. Um, thank you. It, you know, thank you, Tara, and thank you so much for being with me. It's, it, it means a lot to me that you took the time, and it means a lot to me the work you produce again and again and again as a teacher, as an artist, as an inspiration. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends Damon and Daniel at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, to Light Eile and Jordan Allen, and to the Dazzling Tara Betts for being part of it all. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a surprise to you and to others. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. Under the Tree now has a home on the web. You can find us at underthetreepod.com. There you'll find an archive of our past episodes and free rights, along with links to connect with us on social media. We're active on Instagram and Twitter, so follow us there for podcast updates as well as our up-to-the-minute thoughts and ramblings. 